Hello and welcome to episode 26 of Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. We will return to the unfinished session that you last listened to, which was an intro to the history of France. But what it really was, and I should have made this clearer than I did, was my attempt at explaining to you why I can't talk about the history of the Jews of France. Because each town, each region, each Jewish community had such a different history that it's really impossible to lump them all together and make generalizations about the Jews in France. So part of my goal last week was to try to give you a sense of the various discontinuities that France represents, both geographically, culturally, linguistically, etc., etc. And I omitted, in my haste, the most basic linguistic difference, which is even pushing aside all the languages that are truly different, like Alsatian, Breton, Provençal, Basque, etc., etc., in sort of mainstream French, the French spoken in all official texts and documents and meetings, there were, for centuries, two completely different ways of saying yes. And above, north of a certain line in the middle of France, people spoke the langue d'oeil, the language where yes was oeil originally, and that became oui. So if you studied French in high school or college, you studied the langue d'oeil. But south of that line, it was the langue d'oc, and oc was the word for yes. And transforming the speech of Southerners to the speech of Northerners was quite a feat that took centuries and was parallel to a similar feat accomplished in Spain when Castile merged with Aragon and Navarre and Galicia and all these other provinces, which each had their own language. And Castile imposed its language as, quote-unquote, standard Spanish. So, in France, there is a region today called Languedoc-Roussillon, which is in the southwest, but it's much smaller than the region that was once known as Languedoc, which was at least, let's say, the southwest third of all of France. Now, I promise you that this time, unlike the last session, I'm not going to give you a bunch of dates and names and wars without any amusing stories or anecdotes in between. I actually should make a confession in the interest of full disclosure. I've lived and worked in France two different times. My very first posting in the U.S. Foreign Service was as a kind of baby diplomat at the embassy in Paris, where I lasted five and a half months before being transferred to Belgrade, the capital of what was then Yugoslavia. The second time I came to Paris, I not only worked at the embassy, but spent about 15 months in a special program offered to foreigners by the French National School of Administration, a very prestigious school that trains senior civil servants and executives in a variety of parastatal companies. And part of that 15-month program was a stage or an internship in a prefecture. So at some point, I will try to explain to you what is a prefecture and what is a département. But for now, I want to concentrate on a sort of paradox, which is that France is, on the one hand, the home to the Enlightenment, various revolutions, 
innovations in fashion and science. Uh, the French are very fond of change. But on the other hand, France is a profoundly conservative country. And it's quite hard sometimes to reconcile the two halves of this paradox. So rather than give you dry history with lots of dates, let me just give you two sort of anecdotal things. The first has to do with the cathedral in Reims, where for many, many, many centuries, all the kings of France, with the exception of two or three, were crowned. And this cathedral is located in a city that was one of the two cities that vie for the title of capital of Champagne country. It's in northeastern France. It's a very old city that even predates the Gallic Wars and, and the arrival of the Romans. But let me tell you about its cathedral. So during the High Roman Empire, Reims became the capital of a very large province, extending all the way to the delta of the Rhine. And in the third century, it was named capital of this Roman province, which was called the Second Belgium. The first Christian church in Reims was built by the first bishop there, St. Sixtus of Reims, in the second half of the third century. At the beginning of the fifth century, in the Merovingian period, about which you've already heard, a bishop transferred the cathedral to its present location, which is a site formerly occupied by the Gallo-Roman baths built by Constantine the Great. The church was dedicated to the Virgin Mary, anticipating a decision by the Church Council of Ephesus in 431, establishing her enhanced status. And the new cathedral was bigger than its predecessor. And in fact, every cathedral that was built on this same spot over many centuries became bigger and bigger. Clovis I, the king of the Franks, was baptized there in or about the year 496 of the Common Era by Saint-Rémy. And you can probably hear the close relationship between that saint's name and the name of the city. In 816, Louis the Pious, the king of the Franks and co-emperor with his father Charlemagne of the Holy Roman Empire, was crowned in Reims by Pope Stephen IV. The coronation and the ensuing celebrations underlined the poor condition and inadequate size of this early cathedral. So beginning in about 818, they began to build a much larger church from the ground up on the same site using stone from the old city ramparts. This work was interrupted in the 9th century, resumed, interrupted again. At the beginning of the 10th century, an ancient crypt underneath the original church was rediscovered, and that was excavated. In 976, an archbishop named Adalbero began to enlarge the Carolingian cathedral. And to put it briefly, the cathedral went through several disasters like fires and other things, was torn down, rebuilt over many centuries. But a key event took place in 1027 when Henry I of France was crowned in Reims and established the tradition that this cathedral was the place where every French monarch should be crowned. And in fact, from 1097 through the 19th century, all but seven of France's kings were crowned at Reims. And it was not only a site of coronations. 
in the year 1051, Henry I of France and Anna of Kiev were married in this cathedral. While conducting the Great Church Council of Reims in 1131, Pope Innocent II anointed and crowned Louis VII, the son of the ruling King Louis VI, in this cathedral. And so it goes throughout French history that key events in determining and shaping the course of French history were determined at or in this cathedral. For example, the coronation of Charles VII in 1429 marked the reversal of the course of the Hundred Years' War, which the French had been losing very badly, due largely to the actions of Joan of Arc. She is memorialized at Durant's Cathedral with two statues, one on horseback outside the church and another inside the church. In World War I, the Germans went out of their way to shell and attack this church because of its symbolic importance to French national consciousness. And at the end of the war, there was a proposal to keep the cathedral in ruins as a monument to victims of the war. But finally, this idea was rejected, and a major restoration project began in 1919. When Franco-German reconciliation was symbolically formalized in 1962 by French President Charles de Gaulle and German Chancellor Konrad Adenauer. It happened at this site where, in 1914, the Imperial German Army deliberately shelled the cathedral in order to shake French morale. In 1996, Pope John Paul II visited Lens for the 1500th anniversary of the baptism of Clovis, while there, the Pope prayed at the same chapel where La Salle celebrated his first Mass in 1678. Finally, in 2016, a plaque bearing the names of the 31 kings crowned at Lens was placed in the cathedral in the presence of the Archbishop and the Duke of Anjou, who is one of the many pretenders today to the French throne. Now, why did I devote so much time to the story of this one cathedral. My main objective was to show you the degree to which French value continuity and attachment to a distant past, which is, was often much less glorious than modern French citizens imagined that it was. When Clovis was king of the Franks in the Dark Ages, France was a poor country with small towns and unsafe roads and no real system of government whatsoever. And yet the fact that Clovis was baptized in this particular church made it imperative that the church be maintained, rebuilt, restored, safeguarded, and ultimately that the kings of France continue to be crowned there for more than a thousand years after Clovis himself was baptized there. And now I'd like to shift the subject a little bit still keeping away from dates and battles and the names of important kings, uh, I want to talk to you about the subject of cheese and how that relates to the French national identity. Charles de Gaulle once famously remarked, how can I possibly be expected to govern a country that has 400 kinds of cheeses? A very legitimate question. But here's an interesting sidelight and a footnote that even many French people don't actually know. There are 400 types of cheeses available in France, and a really good cheese shop in an important city like Paris will generally have at least 
half those varieties, sometimes three quarters. So you might walk into a little specialty cheese shop on a side street in Paris, which I frequently did quite near to my apartment, and find 300 cheeses, which they're happy to let you sample because most people in France only know three or four of those 400. Now, why should that be? This is a question that puzzled me because it was ultimately the same deal with wines. France has hundreds of different wines. Most French people I knew, even if they liked food and drink, always drank the same three or four wines and always ate the same three or four cheeses. And I would ask them about this. And their answer would be, listen, we eat what we ate at our parents' table. And our parents, in turn, ate and drank what they had at their parents' table. So essentially, most French people are eating the same handful of different cheeses, three, four, five, whatever, and a handful of different wines, four, five, six, that their parents and grandparents drank and that are familiar to them from their childhood. So they're not as adventurous as they might like us to think they are. But I want to tell you an anecdote about cheese and at least the Parisian mentality, if not the whole entire French mentality. I was once staying with an American friend at the lovely Intercontinental Hotel in Paris near the old opera house. And they have a nice executive lounge where you get unlimited champagne and smoked salmon and caviar and whatever. But one night after entertaining some guests in this lounge, the friend with whom I was visiting Paris said, can we just go and sit in like the normal hotel lobby bar? I'd like to see it and do some people watching there and look at people who might actually be from Paris and not from other countries. I said, sure, by all means. And it was fairly late, like nine or 10 at night. And we were both a little bit hungry. So we sat in the bar, very comfortable, leather couches, whatever. And we looked at the bar menu. And my friend, who will almost always get hamburgers and french fries, if that's an option, predictably ordered that. And I, who will almost always get good cheeses, if that's an option, ordered a mini assortment of cheeses. So the waiter was all of maybe 22 or 23 years old and roughly five foot six. And I knew that, well, I knew two things. One, they weren't going to give me a choice about which cheeses, although the hotel probably had 150 cheeses in its kitchens. They were going to choose what they considered the most popular and maybe adjust it to my nationality. So they were going to give me a French equivalent to cheddar and something like brie or camembert and something like Swiss cheese, which they call gruyere, whatever. It wasn't going to be very interesting or exciting, and there was nothing I could do about that. But what I could do was ask the waiter to bring me spicy French mustard instead of butter, with which, for some odd reason, the French traditionally serve cheese with bread and butter. Uh, For me, that's not a very desirable combination. I would much rather have sharp mustard and cheese. So I say to the waiter in French, excuse me, I'm going to ask you something that may be a little shocking. And this guy, this kid really, pulls himself up to his full five foot six and says, sir, I'm Parisian. Nothing can shock me. So I asked him for my, the mustard and he said, well, that's an unusual request, but it's not shocking. Certainly not shocking. Okay, so he brings me the cheeses and says, would you like me to explain what they are? 
And I said, no, this is this, this is this, this is, I identified the four or five of them very quickly. And for the first time, the waiter actually looked impressed. So I said, let me ask you a question. Do you have like a cheese manager here, a sort of sommelier of cheeses? He said, of course. I said, okay, go into the kitchen and ask the cheese sommelier if he has a cheese called Gaperon. So the young man looks at me and says, I've never heard of that. I said, yeah, most French people haven't, but it's actually the best cheese produced in France. It comes from a rural region very far from Paris in the Massif Central, and really the, the center of La France Profonde, the deep France. So the kid comes back a minute later and says, my boss was very impressed that there was someone here who asked for Gaperon. He wants to meet you. Is that okay if I bring him? I said, sure. So the guy comes out and says, how do you know Gaperon? I explained that I'd lived in France a long time and I frequented this one cheese shop in the 7th arrondissement of Paris. And he was very impressed by that. And then he left and the kid says, tell me where this shop is again. I'm going to go tomorrow and buy some. So he at least was open to trying one new cheese because his boss had endorsed my assessment of this cheese as the best cheese in France. Now, what does that show? I mean, all human beings are in some sense creatures of habit, but in another way, the French are profoundly tied to doing the same thing as their parents and grandparents, and often even doing the same profession. Like if your father was a pharmacist or a notary or a lawyer, chances are good that you're going to try to become that, a member of that same profession. So our next session, we'll go back to a few kings who are unforgettable and a few periods of French history that contribute in significant ways to making France what it is today. But for now, I just want to leave you with these couple of stories and this paradox of how France is both an agent of change and a motor of change, and at the same time, profoundly conservative. Thanks for your attention, and I look forward to sharing some more thoughts with you next week.